Okay, now, um, when it comes to this, the sermon part of our services, um, one word that we often hear banded about is the word application, isn't it? We hear a lot of talk about sermon application. I think we all know that for a sermon to be a sermon, there needs to be both uh, the explanation of a text but there also has to be the bringing of that text to bear on a person's life. There has to be expanding explanation, but there also has to be application. Well, despite the fact that what we're dealing with in First Peter is a letter, and it is not a sermon, perhaps if you cast your mind back a little bit, you'll recall that just now we are in what we might think as being the application part of First Peter chapter 1. Do you see what I mean by that or not? Just think about it with me. In verses 1 to 12, what have we seen? We've seen Peter put forward all of this beautiful doctrinal stuff before us. Isn't that right? We've been chosen by God as Christians, born again to live in hope, all this lovely stuff, verses 1 to 12. But then what's happened? In verse 13, we've encountered this word, therefore. Do you see what Peter's done? He's kind of changed tack, changed focus, and he's began to teach us how we should live in light of those glorious gospel truths. Do you see how it's application? He said, therefore, because of all this good stuff, he said, one, application point one, set your hope in Christ. Application point two, because of this, be holy. Isn't that right? Well, as strange as it might sound to you this morning, this is what I want us to do. I want us to simply focus on what we might call Peter's third point of practical application in chapter 1. Something that if you look at verse 17, you shall see it revolves around the idea of fear. Fear. And let me do this. Uh, Let me try and set out how we're going to tackle and approach uh, this third point of application just now. In fact, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll bring it up before you on the screen. So do you see it there? Well, this is what we're going to do. So we are this morning going to have two main headings or two main questions. So we're going to think about what does it mean to fear? That's the first one. And then the second heading will be what motivations are there to fear? And then this is what we're going to do. Do you see it there? We're going to have two main headings, but we're going to have three. For each heading, we're going to have three very, very brief subheadings. Okay, so everyone's following that, do we? Two main headings, three subheadings for each. That's fine. That's great. Okay, we got it. Right, let me ask you to do this. Please grab your Bible, open it to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. That section we read earlier on, and let's think about the first subheading. So let's think about this, the nature of fear. Okay, the nature of fear. Now I think it's uh, probably true that, that most of us watching on are familiar with the language of fear in the Bible. Isn't that right? Um, when I was a kid... Um, my parents, on a daily basis, they used to try and teach myself and my little brother uh, some memory verses from, from the Bible after the evening meal. Maybe some of your your families did the same thing, teaching memory verses. I'm an old man, but I can still remember a few of them. And I can still remember Proverbs 1 verse 7. And I bet my bottom dollar that some of you can remember it too. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of 
wisdom, right? You see, we are familiar, even if we don't recognize, we're familiar with the language of fear in the Bible. But what does it mean? What does it mean to fear, to live in fear? Well, I do think there's a couple of pitfalls that you and I can fall into here. See if you follow these with me. One, we can think that fear is simply an Old Testament reality. You see the idea? We can think, oh, well, yeah, the people in the Old Testament, they had cause to live in terror, live in fear. But, oh, things are different for us. We're in the New Covenant age, you know. When it says fear, really, it just means, oh, believe, have faith. That's what it means, right? So we can think it's an Old Testamental reality. Here's the other pitfall. We can think that fear is just simply for the unbelieving person. Isn't that right? Can we think like that? That we can think, oh, outside of Jesus, yeah, you've every right to fear and live in terror, but but not us. Like we're no longer enmity with God. We're reconciled with God. We don't we don't need to fear. Did you see it? Well, with everything and with those things, there's there's elements of truth. Of course, there is. But I think you and I need to keep in view what Peter is doing right there. What's Peter doing? Think about it. He is writing a letter to Christians. And he's writing to Christians in the New Covenant age. And he's saying to us, fear. So I think we need to, just for a second, we need to pause and think, well, what does he mean? What is the nature of this fear? So see if this helps you. This fear that Peter's talking about, it is more than simply trusting in God. And I think it is less than living in complete terror of God. Let me throw this definition at you. This fear Peter's talking about here, it surely is an awe-filled reverence before a sovereign God. An awe-filled reverence. Or or let me throw you someone else's definition. This fear is a holy self-suspicion of offending God. A holy self-suspicion of offending God. An awe-filled reverence for the Almighty. That's the nature of fear. The second thing that we need to think about here, though, is the activity of fear. The activity of fear. Now, with uh, three kids kicking about the home, uh, I'm sure you can imagine that cartoons have uh, figured prominently in the Pearson household uh, over the last few years. Cartoons. So let me uh, ask you, how is it very often that cartoons portray fear? Think about that for a moment. Isn't it true that very often in cartoons that fear is associated with uh, shaking, just freezing, uh, immobility? Uh, where do we go for? Let's go for Scooby-Doo. Right, take Scooby Doo. So uh, we all love Scooby Doo, don't we? Like, so there's you can imagine it. There's Scooby Doo, and he's confronted by the monster. All right, it's always the same, isn't it? You and I know it's the museum curator, isn't it, with a mask on? <laughs> but Scooby Doo doesn't know that, and so he's confronted by the monster. What happens? Scooby just begins to shake, and he just freezes on the spot, and he's panicking. We even talk about being paralyzed. By fear, don't we? Well, why am I talking to you about that? Well, I want you to see that the opposite is in view in First Peter chapter 1. Have a look at verse 17 with me. <coughs> Excuse me. We talk about being paralyzed by fear, but what does Peter say to us? He actually says, conduct yourselves with 
fear. Did you see this this awe-filled reverence for God that he's talking about? Isn't something that should limit the Christian's activity? But actually this fear that Peter has in view is something that should lead to, indeed, something that should govern everything in the Christian life. And, and you sit there, can you think about that just for a moment? Isn't it something? That yes, everything in our Christian experience, everything in our life should be infused by, what, humility? Shouldn't it? The way that we act, everything we do should be infused by a pursuit of holiness and a love for our neighbour. But what's this? What we learn in here, that absolutely everything in our lives, everything we do, everything we think, all of our actions should be governed by a healthy fear of Almighty God. It is something, isn't it? Peter doesn't just say to you, fear. He says, conduct yourself in your life and everything. Conduct yourselves with fear. Okay. Yeah, you're with me? So the nature, the activity, the third sub-point here is the priority of fear. The priority of fear. See, it's been a few weeks actually since we've been in First Peter, hasn't it? Um, Harrison preached a couple of weeks ago and then uh, we had the joint service. So I guess I've got to ask you this. Can you recall uh, precisely to whom it is that Peter is writing? Can you recall the recipients of this letter? You'd say, yes, it's Christians in Asia Minor, what is modern day Turkey. You remember that circle that we drew around modern day Turkey? You remember that? So you'd say that, but let's be a bit more exact about it. Peter is writing to suffering Christians. We remember that, don't we? Suffering Christians, these are people who are facing the beginnings of opposition in the Roman Empire, marginalised from society, ostracised, that sort of thing, the implications of all of that. Well, if you think about that for a moment, isn't it interesting to consider that it is to those people, people in that circumstance that the Holy Spirit issues this command. Do you see what I'm getting at? That this, this command, to conduct yourselves with fear, it isn't issued to the Thessalonians, it isn't issued to the Corinthians, but it's issued to, to suffering believers. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it almost as though Peter is saying here to these people, it's almost like he's saying, above all else... <laughs> Fear God. Isn't it like that? As though Peter's kind of saying, look, I know you've got so many concerns in Asia Minor. You've got so many worries and you could fear the Roman Empire. You could fear death and the economic implications and, and all of these things. Displacement. But above all of this, conduct yourselves with in reverent awe of the Almighty God. You see? And if you think about that... Don't you just sense a sort of weighty relevance of this verse to your life, to my life? Because you think about just now our predicament, our situation and the situation of those who are watching just now. Okay, we are not being overtly persecuted. Yeah, but it's definitely true with COVID-19 that many tuning in just now, many of you are suffering Christians, right? Isn't that it? Many people worried about your health. Many people worried about the future. Many worried about the economic implications of all of us. Many worried about family. And, and do you see, it is to us. As much as it is to these people at first, it's to us 
We are being told, conduct yourself. Look, all of our concerns above that. Be scared of that as much as we conduct ourselves with the fear of God. And so I want to suggest this. Okay, please listen. We've talked about application. Let me talk about application here. Okay, let me suggest. Yes, this week we turn to God's word and we study. Of course I'm going to say that to you. But hear this. In addition to where we normally read, I want to suggest to you that we turn this week to portions of scripture that most clearly set out the majesty of God. You hear that? In addition to what we normally read, we turn to these portions of scripture where the power and the majesty of God are clearly seen. You know the places, Exodus 33 or with Elijah and Mount Carmel, Isaiah chapter 6. And why do that? Why? So that we see again and are reminded by the Holy Spirit that yes, our God is a God in whom we can trust. Yes, our God is a God of grace, but... By looking at these portions of scripture, you and I will be reminded our God is a God before whom we should tremble. Ours is a God before whom you and I as Christians should conduct ourselves with fear. Okay, so what does it mean to fear God? We've thought about the nature, the activity, and we've thought about the priority of fear. Let's move on, shall we? Let's move on to the second heading or the second big massive question that we're asking and that is what motivations are there to fear what motivations are there to fear because let's face it if i'm attacked by a bear you know in that likely scenario i am attacked by a bear one day i get that i have reason to be afraid or if a burglar breaks into my house then again, I get that I should be frightened, but do you see it? Like, why? Why should I live in fear and reverent awe of a God who is, after all, gracious and loving and, and, and caring and so forth? Look, why? Well, what have you thought about the theme this so far uh, this morning? I mean, isn't it true that we are so used to, in the contemporary church, Themes about forgiveness and love and grace. That, uh, you know, uh, the subject matter, the, the language of fear, living in fear can make us, you know, sit quite uncomfortably. Is that true? Is that, is it uncomfortable to talk about conducting ourselves with fear? Well, if you think like that, um, I, <laughs> no good news for you. It only gets worse, right? Because listen to this. In this section of scripture, Peter gives you Three reasons why, as a Christian, you ought to conduct yourselves in fear. And if you weren't sitting uncomfortably a moment ago, you're just about to. In fact, you're probably just going to fall on the floor, such as your lack of comfort. Because the first motivation, the first reason that Peter gives for you to conduct yourselves with fear is this. It is the coming judgment of God. Judgment. Look at verse 17 with me. Look what Peter says. We're asking, like, why would we fear? And Peter says, if you, if you call on, on God as Father who judges, not only that, impartially, according to each one's deeds, you conduct yourselves with fear. Now, 
I want to put this to you, and I want you to wrestle this one, okay? Think about this one with me. When you think about God's coming judgment, judgment day, when you think about that for a moment, what do you think is going to happen? What do you envisage? What comes to mind when you think about God's judgment? I, I, I reckon a lot of us think like this. We think, right, God's judgment, what's going to happen? Well, Christ is going to come back, isn't he? And then everyone's going to appear before Jesus. And we think like this, that judgment day is simply about discerning who has trusted in Jesus in this life and who has not. Is that how you think about judgment day? You know, Christ comes back, uh, end of all things, we appear before Christ, and there's this great separation Right, you know, if you've trusted in Christ, heavens and your new heavens and earth. If you haven't trusted in Christ, oh, eternal hell. And that's, it's about, simply about who has trusted in Christ and who has not. Is that how we think about it? Well, yes. Yes. But what I want you to think about is that there is a, another aspect to Judgment Day. One that is just totally neglected so often, and it is this aspect that Peter sees as being motivation for us to conduct ourselves with fear. So what is it? Well, well, look at verse 17 again. This is what we'll do. I will ask you a couple of questions about verse 17. So did you see it there? There's verse 17. Right, here's my questions. Here's the first question. Who, who is set to be judged on that coming day? Did you just, do you see it's everyone. Like sometimes we think, don't we? Oh well, it's just unbelieving people, they're going to be judged and judged. No, but wait, hang on a second. Everyone impartially is going to be judged in judgment day. Right? Here's a second question. Now listen. See if you get this one. What, what is said to be judged on this final day? Do, 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 look at that. Our deeds? It's not, hang on a second. Our works, our deeds? Think about that. In in line with Romans 2, let me read to you what Paul says. Christ will render to each one according to his works. And in line with Revelation 20, listen to this, the dead are judged according to what they have done. What's the reality here? On that final day, when all things end, Christ has returned, Christ stands as judge, to use the words of our confession, all people will be get, called to give an account for their thoughts, their words, and their deeds. My life! Like, are you following this? Like, be careful. Like, salvation is based on this by grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is not by our works. But what's this we're learning that on judgment day our deeds will still be assessed, they will be scrutinised, our works will be judged by God. And man, when you pause on that, just think about it for a second. What do you realise? Wow, you realise Peter is correct, man. Like what cause, what motivation for us right now in the time we have on this earth to conduct ourselves in reverent awe of Almighty God. I mean, Christian friend, watching, you're a believer. Think about it. One day, you are going to stand before the tribunal of the King of Kings. You will stand at the bar before God. And the one who knows absolutely everything there is to know about you on that day, 
He will pour over your life in, in, in detail. And why? Second Corinthians chapter 5. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. So we see one reason to conduct ourselves in fear is, is judgment, our judgment. A second reason that Peter gives here is our redemption. Redemption. So can I ask you to look with me at verse 18 now? Look at verse 18. Do you go from verse 18 there? Do you see it? Conduct yourselves in fear. And he goes on to say, knowing that you were, there's that word, ransomed. You were ransomed. Now, are you with me that outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture, we hear that word ransom and quite simply, we only have negative connotations of that word. Isn't that right? Can I tell you what I think about when I hear about ransoming? I think about Somali pirates, or I think about sort of mafia gangsters somewhere, you know, and they kidnap somebody and they demand a fee, right? That's what we think about, isn't it? A ransom price, a ransom. Well, of course, it was very different in the ancient world. You have to appreciate, first of all, that, that ransoming had a very positive aspect to it. For instance, did you know this? That in the ancient world, a soldier, if he was captured by an enemy force, he could be bought out of that. He could be ransomed or a slave, right? A slave could save up and pay the price, the ransoming price to freedom. So there's a positive aspect. But then you know, and I know as well, this idea of ransoming has biblical roots, doesn't it? Israel, ransomed from Egypt. What does Isaiah 52 tell us? Isaiah 52 tells us that Israel, out of Babylon in exile, Israel was ransomed. Right? That's great. Oh, really interesting, fascinating stuff. Brilliant, great. Do you know what I think is most striking? Christian friends, you're watching this just now. Peter... In this letter, he says that it is you who has been redeemed. It is you who has been ransomed. I, uh, I, I, I want to know, like, well, what does that mean? What, what has happened for me? Well, first of all, consider what it is that we have been set free from. Because I think, you know, don't you? that we tend to, in the Christian church, think about our ransoming in very general terms. What have we been set free from? Sin? Uh, I don't know, darkness? Captivity? Notice here, though, that Peter's very precise. Have a look at verse 18. Look at that again. What does he say? He says that you have been ransomed from, now look at that, futile ways. Futile. I love that. That is such an uplifting idea, isn't it? Like, you know, our society, like everyone around us is desperate for meaning and throwing themselves into things that they think has got purpose, you know, the latest cause or community or cycling highways and and ultimately, what do we know? Scripture tells us ultimately these things are, you know, vacuous and empty, it's just, it's just vapor, isn't it? 500 years from now, it ain't going to mean anything and what has God done for you by grace? Don't you, don't you read it? Don't you see it? God himself has paid a price to liberate you. 
God has paid a price to free you so that just now, right now with your life, you can live in ways that will have meaning, do have meaning. You can live in ways that do have worth and worth eternally. Do you see it? You've been freed by God from futility. But that is not, as great as it is, is not Peter's main point. This is Peter's main point. He wants you to understand, Christian friend, that the price that was paid for you was an unspeakably immeasurable price. Look at verse 18 and 19. Please look at it. You were ransomed from futility, from futilities. And the question we have is, was how? And look what he says. Such was the severity of our plight because of sin. Not even the most precious metals on earth could redeem us. Not even silver, not even gold could redeem us. What was the only thing capable of paying this price on our heads? Do you see? It was the most precious thing of all. The blood of the God-man. You know what is there? Look at the reference to a lamb. What was the price? The only price that could save you and free you was a sacrificial death. It was the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was paid for you to ransom you. And if you just linger on that just for a second, you must get to the point again where you say, Peter, you were correct. What cause, what motivation that is for me right now to conduct myself. And Peter, if, if you are a Christian watching this, did you not see what's happened? Like to, to free you, to set you free, to save you, to free you from captivity. The creator, God himself, has borne the most unspeakable price. He has watched his only beloved son die and die for you. Doesn't that make us think? Doesn't it make us determined to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? So we see one reason is judgment. Another reason, redemption. We have been ransomed at such a price. But then the last of these, why should, why should we, why should we conduct ourselves with this one is our status, our status. See, there's that uh, old joke made about ministers, isn't it? Isn't there that? And ministers love to return to their favourite hobby horses, right? Ministers love to return to their favourite themes. You know, the, the, the Baptist minister whose third point is always about full immersion. Or the so-called prosperity preacher who always manages to talk about tithing, surprisingly enough, right? You know that? Well, uh, much more seriously and much more legitimately, isn't that what Peter does in chapter 1? Because I know, right, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in First Peter, but surely you remember this, that one of the primary themes of chapter 1 has been the privileged status of New Testament believers. Our privileged status. Do you remember that? You do, right? Okay, we've, we've been chosen by God, we've got this great inheritance, but do you remember it? That we have what the prophets in the Old Testament long to see. We, we have that, we, we know it. 
We even have what angels long to understand. We've got this beautifully privileged status as New Testament Christians. Well, as he ends this section, doesn't he come back to that favourite thing? Because look at this, look at verse 20. Yes, he speaks about... Christ being chosen, that's the idea of that word, Christ being chosen before the creation of the world, now made manifest. Then verse 21 talks about the resurrection again, the Father's role in the resurrection, all of that. But do you see his theme? Look look at the common, look at the repetition. Why did all of that happen? Look at those words. It was, oh, it was for your sake. It was for your faith, for your sake. One commentator puts it like this. He says the emphasis there on this phrase, for your sake, the emphasis is on for your sake, as though the whole purpose of God was carried out especially for us. The whole purpose of God carried out for the Christian of those verses. I don't know about you. I find that the most compelling reason for me to assess my life and to consider whether or not I presently conduct my life in fear of God. Consider the splendid work of redemption. It wasn't done for everyone. This great work of salvation, not done for all of the masses of humanity. It was done for a select few, an elect group. It was done for us. It was done for you. I mean, you know that idea, don't you? When you see a loved one in a crowd, you know it? Like maybe you see your child at a school play, or you see your wife, your husband, and this, this group of people. You see your father, your mother. What happens? The rest of the people blur, and you focus on that loved one. You stare at that loved one in the distance. And isn't that what's happened? Before the creation of the world, God has looked at you. He has looked at you with love. All of this great work done for your sake, Christian friend. How that should propel us to assess our lives, to consider, am I living for the honour and glory of Jesus? My life is so important and so important to God. Am I conducting myself just now? And conducting myself with fear of him. And then I want to end like this. Because our God is so often parodied by our society. Laughter. I need us all to understand this. That God is so good that he has to punish our sin. There's been so much talked about an injustice in our world and people are longing for justice. We need to understand that our God is so perfectly just that he has to, he's compelled by his nature, if you allow that. He has to punish wrong. He has to punish our sin and our wickedness. Now, you understand that? Well, you need to understand that that can happen only in one of two ways. By our repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, our wickedness can be reckoned to Christ and Christ can deal with our punishment. Christ can be punished in our place, the cross. That can happen. Or should we reject that gospel offer? Friends, we will stand to face that punishment ourselves in death 
and eternally. And if you're watching on just now and you choose by your rejection of Christ, by your lack of repentance and faith, if you choose that second path, I need to say to you, though this letter here is written to Christians, you ought to in an entirely different way conduct your life with fear. You have every reason if you're rejecting Christ, every reason for terror and to tremble before God. But it doesn't need to be like that. You see that, don't you? Recognize here what Christ has done on that cross at Calvary. Christ has paid a price sufficient to see you even today set free from captivity, to see you saved, forgiven. You can have that punishment reckoned, borne by Christ Jesus, if you will only repent and believe. So we started this sermon talking about application. We ended talking about application. Because if you are unbelieving, will you not apply this text in the best possible way? Will you not see what Christ has done, his blood spilled as a ransom. And will you not today come to him, believe, repent of your sin, come to Christ Jesus this very hour, see the urgency of it, come to him and be saved. Friends, let's bow our heads before a God to be feared. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that we are so wrapped up in our own concerns, our own desires. We live primarily for ourselves and we get matters out of kilter, out of focus, out of perspective. We pray as your people asking that you would help us to conduct ourselves with fear, to live rightly, to live appropriately and to live for your honour. We also pray, Lord God, that you would use this very moment, this very video, to convict people of sin who are, to this point, unbelieving. And we ask, Lord God, that you would lift the veil that they might recognise the glory of Jesus, their need for Jesus, and that you might call them to yourself to be saved. We pray in Christ's name. For his name's sake. Amen.